Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Seven, The Remaining Branches of Industry, Part Two. After the textile fabrics, by far the most important products of English industry are the metal wares. This trade has its headquarters at Birmingham, where the finer metal goods of all sorts are produced, at Sheffield for cutlery, and in Staffordshire, especially at Wolverhampton, where the coarser articles, locks, nails, etc., are manufactured. In describing the position of the workers employed in these trades, let us begin with Birmingham. The disposition of the work has retained in Birmingham, as in most places where metals are wrought, something of the old handicraft character. The small employers are still to be found, who work with their apprentices in the shop at home, or when they need steam power, in great factory buildings, which are divided into little shops, each rented to a small employer, and supplied with a shaft moved by the engine, and furnishing motive power for the machinery. Léon Fauchet, author of a series of articles in the Revue des Deux Mondes, which at least betray study, and are better than what has hitherto been written upon the subject by Englishmen or Germans, characterizes this relation in contrast with the manufacture of Lancashire as, quote, démocratie industrielle, end quote, and observes that it produces no very favorable results for master or men. This observation is perfectly correct, for the many small employers cannot well subsist on the profit divided amongst them, determined by competition, a profit under other circumstances absorbed by a single manufacturer. The centralizing tendency of capital holds them down. For one who grows rich, ten are ruined, and a hundred placed at a greater disadvantage than ever by the pressure of the one upstart who can afford to sell more cheaply than they. And in the cases where they have to compete from the beginning against great capitalists, it is self-evident that they can only toil along with the greatest difficulty. The apprentices are, as we shall see, quite as badly off under the small employers as under the manufacturers, with the single difference that they, in turn, may become small employers, and so attain a certain independence, that is to say, they are at best less directly exploited by the bourgeoisie than under the factory system. Thus these small employers are neither genuine proletarians, since they live in part upon the work of their apprentices, nor genuine bourgeois, since their principal means of support is their own work. This peculiar midway position of the Birmingham iron-workers is to blame for their having so rarely joined wholly and unreservedly in the English labour movements. Birmingham is a politically radical, but not a chartist town. There are, however, numerous larger factories belonging to capitalists, and in these the factory system reigns supreme. The division of labour, which is here carried out to the last detail, in the needle industry, for example, and the use of steam-power, admit of the employment of a great multitude of women and children, and we find here precisely the same features reappearing which the factories' reports presented, the work of women up to the hour of confinement, incapacity as housekeepers, neglect of home and children, indifference, actual dislike to family life, and demoralization. Further, the crowding out of men from employment, the constant improvement of machinery, early emancipation of children, husbands supported by their wives and children, 
etc., etc. The children are described as half-starved and ragged, the half of them are said not to know what it is to have enough to eat, many of them get nothing to eat before the midday meal, or even live the whole day upon a pennyworth of bread for a noonday meal. There were actually cases in which children received no food from eight in the morning until seven at night. Their clothing is very often scarcely sufficient to cover their nakedness. Many are barefoot even in winter. Hence they are all small and weak for their age, and rarely develop with any degree of vigor. And when we reflect that with these insufficient means of reproducing the physical forces, hard and protracted work in close rooms is required of them, we cannot wonder that there are few adults in Birmingham fit for military service. Quote, the working men, says a recruiting surgeon, are small, delicate, and of very slight physical power, many of them deformed, too, in the chest or spinal column. According to the assertion of a recruiting sergeant, the people of Birmingham are smaller than those anywhere else, being usually five feet four to five inches tall. Out of 613 recruits, but 238 were found fit for service. As to education, a series of depositions and specimens taken from the metal districts have already been given, to which the reader is referred. It appears further from the Children's Employment Commission's report that in Birmingham more than half the children between five and fifteen years attend no school whatsoever, that those who do are constantly changing, so that it is impossible to give them any training of an enduring kind, and that they are all withdrawn from school very early and set to work. The report makes it clear what sort of teachers are employed. One teacher, in answer to the question whether she gave moral instruction, said, No, for threepence a week school fees that was too much to require, but that she took a great deal of trouble to instill good principles into the children, and she made a decided slip in her English in saying it. In the schools the commissioner found constant noise and disorder. The moral state of the children is in the highest degree deplorable. Half of all the criminals are children under fifteen, and in a single year ninety ten-years-old offenders, among them forty-four serious criminal cases, were sentenced. Unbridled sexual intercourse seems, according to the opinion of the commissioner, almost universal, and that at a very early age. In the Iron District of Staffordshire the state of things is still worse. For the coursewares made here neither much division of labour, with certain exceptions, nor steam-power or machinery can be applied. In Wolverhampton, Willenall, Bilston, Sedgley, Wensfield, Darleston, Dudley, Walsall, Wednesbury, etc., there are therefore fewer factories, but chiefly single forges, where the small masters work alone, or with one or more apprentices, who serve them until reaching the twenty-first year. The small employers are in about the same situation as those of Birmingham, but the apprentices as a rule are much worse off. They get almost exclusively meat from diseased animals, or such as have died a natural death, or tainted meat, or fish to eat, with veal from calves killed too young, and pork from swine smothered during transportation, and such food is furnished not by small employers only, but by large manufacturers, thirty to forty apprentices. The custom seems to be universal in Wolverhampton, and its natural consequence is frequent bowel complaints and other diseases. Moreover, the children usually do not get enough to eat, and have rarely other clothing than their working rags, for which reason, if for no other, they cannot go to Sunday school. 
the dwellings are bad and filthy often so much so that they give rise to disease and in spite of the not materially unhealthy work the children are puny weak and in many cases severely crippled in willenal for instance there are countless persons who have from perpetually filing at the lathe crooked backs and one leg crooked hind leg as they call it so that the two legs have the form of a k while it is said that more than one-third of the working-men there are ruptured here as well as in wolverhampton numberless cases were found of retarded puberty among girls for girls too work at the forges as well as among boys extending even to the nineteenth year in sedgley and its surrounding district where nails form almost the sole product the nailers live and work in the most wretched stable-like huts which for filth can scarcely be equalled girls and boys work from the tenth or twelfth year and are accounted fully skilled only when they make a thousand nails a day for twelve hundred nails the pay is five and three-quarter pence every nail receives twelve blows and since the hammer weighs one and a quarter pounds the nailer must lift eighteen thousand pounds to earn this miserable pay with this hard work and insufficient food the children inevitably develop ill-formed undersized frames and the commissioner's depositions confirm this as to the state of education in this district data have already been furnished in the foregoing chapters it is upon an incredibly low plane half the children do not even go to sunday school and the other half go irregularly very few in comparison with the other districts can read and in the matter of writing the case is much worse naturally for between the seventh and tenth years just when they are beginning to get some good out of going to school they are set to work and the sunday school teachers smiths or miners frequently cannot read and write their names with difficulty the prevailing morals correspond with these means of education in willenal commissioner horne asserts and supplies ample proofs of his assertion that there exists absolutely no moral sense among the workers in general he found that the children neither recognized duties to their parents nor felt any affection for them they were so little capable of thinking of what they said so stolid so hopelessly stupid that they often asserted that they were well treated were coming on famously when they were forced to work twelve to fourteen hours were clad in rags did not get enough to eat and were beaten so that they felt it several days afterwards they knew nothing of a different kind of life than that in which they toil from morning until they are allowed to stop at night and did not even understand the question never heard before whether they were tired in sheffield wages are better and the external state of workers also on the other hand certain branches of work are to be noticed here because of their extraordinarily injurious influence upon health certain operations require the constant pressure of tools against the chest and engender consumption in many cases others file-cutting among them retard the general development of the body and produce digestive disorders bone-cutting for knife-handles brings with it headache biliousness and among girls of whom many are employed anemia by far the most unwholesome work is the grinding of knife-blades and forks which especially when done with a dry stone entails certain early death the unwholesomeness of this work lies in part in the bent posture 
in which chest and stomach are cramped, but especially in the quantity of sharp-edged metal dust particles freed in the cutting, which fill the atmosphere and are necessarily inhaled. The dry grinder's average life is hardly thirty-five years. The wet grinder's rarely exceeds forty-five. Dr. Knight in Sheffield says, quote, I can convey some idea of the injuriousness of this occupation only by asserting that the hardest drinkers among the grinders are the longest lived among them, because they are longest and oftenest absent from their work. There are in all some 2,500 grinders in Sheffield. About 150, 80 men and 70 boys, are fork grinders. These die between the 28th and 32nd years of age. The razor grinders, who grind wet as well as dry, die between forty and forty-five years, and the table cutlery grinders, who grind wet, die between the fortieth and fiftieth year. The same physician gives the following description of the course of the disease called grinders' asthma. Quote, they usually begin their work with the fourteenth year, and if they have good constitutions, rarely notice any symptoms before the twentieth year then the symptoms of their peculiar disease appear. They suffer from shortness of breath at the slightest effort in going uphill or upstairs. They habitually raise the shoulders to relieve the permanent and increasing want of breath. They bend forward, and seem in general to feel most comfortable in the crouching position in which they work. Their complexion becomes dirty yellow, their features express anxiety, they complain of pressure upon the chest. Their voices become rough and hoarse, they cough loudly, and the sound is as if air were driven through a wooden tube. From time to time they expectorate considerable quantities of dust, either mixed with phlegm or in balls or cylindrical masses, with a thin coating of mucus. Spitting blood, inability to lie down, night sweat, colliquative diarrhoea, unusual loss of flesh, and all the usual symptoms of consumption of the lungs finally carry them off, after they have lingered months or even years, unfit to support themselves or those dependent upon them. I must add that all attempts which have hitherto been made to prevent grinders' asthma, or to cure it, have wholly failed." All this, Knight wrote ten years ago, since then the number of grinders and the violence of the disease have increased, though attempts have been made to prevent it by covered grindstones and carrying off the dust by artificial draught. These methods have been at least partially successful, but the grinders do not desire their adoption, and have even destroyed the contrivance here and there, in the belief that more workers may be attracted to the business and wages thus reduced. They are for a short life and a merry one. Dr. Knight has often told grinders who came to him with the first symptoms of asthma, that a return to grinding means certain death, but with no avail. He who is once a grinder falls into despair, as though he had sold himself to the devil. Education in Sheffield is upon a very low plane. A clergyman, who had occupied himself largely with the statistics of education, was of the opinion that of 16,500 children of the working class who are in a position to attend school, scarcely 6,500 can read. This comes of the fact that the children are taken from school in the seventh, and at the very latest, in the twelfth year, and that the teachers are good for nothing. One was a convicted thief who found no other way of supporting himself after being released from jail than teaching school. 
immorality among young people seems to be more prevalent in sheffield than anywhere else it is hard to tell which town ought to have the prize and in reading the report one believes of each one that this certainly deserves it the younger generation spend the whole of saturday lying in the street tossing coins or fighting dogs go regularly to the gin palace where they sit with their sweethearts until late at night when they take walks in solitary couples in an alehouse which the commissioner visited there sat forty to fifty young people of both sexes nearly all under seventeen years of age and each lad beside his lass here and there cards were played at other places dancing was going on and everywhere drinking among the company were openly avowed professional prostitutes no wonder then that as all the witnesses testify early unbridled sexual intercourse youthful prostitution beginning with persons of fourteen to fifteen years is extraordinarily frequent in sheffield crimes of a savage and desperate sort are of common occurrence one year before the commissioner's visit a band consisting chiefly of young persons was arrested when about to set fire to the town being fully equipped with lances and inflammable substances we shall see later that the labour movement in sheffield has this same savage character besides these two main centres of the metal industry there are needle factories in warrington lancashire where great want immorality and ignorance prevail among the workers and especially among the children and a number of nail forges in the neighbourhood of wigan in lancashire and in the east of scotland the reports from these latter districts tell almost precisely the same story as those of staffordshire there is one more branch of this industry carried on in the factory districts especially in lancashire the essential peculiarity of which is the production of machinery by machinery whereby the workers crowded out elsewhere are deprived of their last refuge the creation of the very enemy which supersedes them machinery for planing and boring cutting screws wheels nuts etc with power lathes has thrown out of employment a multitude of men who formerly found regular work at good wages and whoever wishes to do so may see crowds of them in manchester north of the iron district of staffordshire lies an industrial region to which we shall now turn our attention the potteries whose headquarters are in the borough of stoke embracing henley burslem lane end lane delf etruria coleridge langport tunstall and golden hill containing together sixty thousand inhabitants the children's employment commission reports upon this subject that in some branches of this industry in the production of stoneware the children have light employment in warm airy rooms in others on the contrary hard wearing labour is required while they receive neither sufficient food nor good clothing many children complain quote, don't get enough to eat get mostly potatoes with salt never meat never bread don't go to school haven't got no clothes quote, haven't got nothing to eat to-day for dinner don't never have dinner at home get mostly potatoes and salt sometimes bread quote, these is all the clothes i have no sunday suit at home among the children whose work is especially injurious are the mould runners who have to carry the moulded article with the form to the drawing-room and afterwards bring back the empty form when the article is properly dried thus they must go to and fro the whole day 
carrying burdens heavy in proportion to their age, while the high temperature in which they have to do this increases very considerably the exhaustiveness of the work. These children, with scarcely a single exception, are lean, pale, feeble, stunted. Nearly all suffer from stomach troubles, nausea, want of appetite, and many of them die of consumption. Almost as delicate are the boys called jiggers, from the jigger-wheel which they turn. But by far the most injurious is the work of those who dip the finished article into a fluid containing great quantities of lead, and often of arsenic, or have to take the freshly dipped article up with the hand. The hands and clothing of these workers, adults and children, are always wet with this fluid. The skin softens and falls off under the constant contact with rough objects, so that the fingers often bleed, and are constantly in a state most favourable for the absorption of this dangerous substance. The consequence is violent pain, and serious disease of the stomach and intestines, obstinate constipation, colic, sometimes consumption, and most common of all, epilepsy among children. Among men, partial paralysis of the hand muscles, colica pictorum, and paralysis of whole limbs are ordinary phenomena. One witness relates that two children who worked with him died of convulsions at their work. Another, who had helped with the dipping two years while a boy, relates that he had violent pains in the bowels at first, then convulsions, in consequence of which he was confined to his bed two months, since when the attacks of convulsions have increased in frequency, are now daily, accompanied often by ten to twenty epileptic fits, his right arm is paralyzed, and the physicians tell him that he can never regain the use of his limbs. In one factory were found in the dipping-house four men, all epileptic and afflicted with severe colic, and eleven boys, several of whom were already epileptic. In short, this frightful disease follows this occupation universally, and that too to the greater pecuniary profit of the bourgeoisie. In the rooms in which the stoneware is scoured, the atmosphere is filled with pulverized flint, the breathing of which is as injurious as that of the steel-dust among the Sheffield grinders. The workers lose breath, cannot lie down, suffer from sore throat and violent coughing, and come to have so feeble a voice that they can scarcely be heard. They, too, all die of consumption. In the Potteries district, the schools are said to be comparatively numerous, and to offer the children opportunities for instruction, but as the latter are so early set to work for twelve hours, and often more per day, they are not in a position to avail themselves of the schools, so that three-fourths of the children examined by the commissioner could neither read nor write, while the whole district is plunged in the deepest ignorance. Children who have attended Sunday school for years could not tell one letter from another, and the moral and religious education, as well as the intellectual, is on a very low plane. In the manufacture of glass, too, work occurs which seems little injurious to men, but cannot be endured by children. The hard labor, the irregularity of the hours, the frequent night work, and especially the great heat of the working place, 100 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, engender in children general debility and disease, stunted growth, and especially affections of the eye, bowel complaint, and rheumatic and bronchial affections. Many of the children are pale, have red eyes, often blind for weeks at a time, 
suffer from violent nausea, vomiting, coughs, colds, and rheumatism. When the glass is withdrawn from the fire, the children must often go into such heat that the boards on which they stand catch fire under their feet. The glass-blowers usually die young of debility and chest affections. As a whole, this report testifies to the gradual but sure introduction of the factory system into all branches of industry, recognizable especially by the employment of women and children. I have not thought it necessary to trace in every case the progress of machinery and the superseding of men as workers. Everyone who is in any degree acquainted with the nature of manufacture can fill this out for himself, while space fails me to describe in detail an aspect of our present system of production, the result of which I have already sketched in dealing with the factory system. In all directions machinery is being introduced, and the last trace of the working man's independence thus destroyed. In all directions the family is being dissolved by the labour of wife and children, or inverted by the husband's being thrown out of employment and made dependent upon them for bread. Everywhere the inevitable machinery bestows upon the great capitalist command of trade and of the workers with it. The centralization of capital strides forward without interruption, the division of society into great capitalists and non-possessing workers is sharper every day. The industrial development of the nation advances with giant strides towards the inevitable crisis. I have already stated that in the handicrafts the power of capital, and in some cases the division of labor too, has produced the same results, crushed the small tradesmen, and put great capitalists and non-possessing workers in their place. As to these handicraftsmen there is little to be said, since all that relates to them has already found its place where the proletariat in general was under discussion. There has been but little change here in the nature of the work and its influence upon health since the beginning of the industrial movement. But the constant contact with the factory operatives, the pressure of the great capitalists, which is much more felt than that of the small employer to whom the apprentice still stood in a more or less personal relation, the influences of life in towns and the fall of wages have made nearly all the handicraftsmen active participators in labor movements. We shall soon have more to say on this point, and shall turn, meanwhile, to one section of workers in London who deserve our attention by reason of the extraordinary barbarity with which they are exploited by the money-greed of the bourgeoisie, I mean the dressmakers and sewing-women. This fact, that the production of precisely those articles which serve the personal adornment of the ladies of the bourgeoisie involves the saddest consequences for the health of the workers. We have already seen this in the case of the lace-makers, and come now to the dressmaking establishments of London for further proof. They employ a mass of young girls, there are said to be fifteen thousand of them in all, who sleep and eat on the premises, come usually from the country, and are therefore absolutely the slaves of their employers. During the fashionable season, which lasts some four months, working hours, even in the best establishments, are fifteen, and in very pressing cases, eighteen a day. But in most shops work goes on at these times without any set regulation, so that the girls never have more than six, often not more than three or four, sometimes indeed not more than two hours in the twenty-four, for rest and sleep, 
working nineteen to twenty hours, if not the whole night through, as frequently happens. The only limit set to their work is the absolute physical inability to hold the needle another minute. Cases have occurred in which these helpless creatures did not undress during nine consecutive days and nights, and could only rest a moment or two here and there upon a mattress, where food was served them ready cut up, in order to require the least possible time for swallowing. In short, these unfortunate girls are kept by means of the moral whip of the modern slave-driver, the threat of discharge, to such long and unbroken toil as no strong man, much less a delicate girl of fourteen to twenty years, can endure. In addition to this, the foul air of the workroom and sleeping-places, the bent posture, the often bad and indigestible food, all these causes, combined with almost total exclusion from fresh air, entail the saddest consequences for the health of the girls. Enervation, exhaustion, debility, loss of appetite, pains in the shoulders, back and hips, but especially headache, begin very soon. Then follow curvatures of the spine, high deformed shoulders, leanness, swelled, weeping and smarting eyes, which soon become short-sighted, coughs, narrow chests and shortness of breath, and all manner of disorders in the development of the female organism. In many cases the eyes suffer so severely that incurable blindness follows, but if the sight remains strong enough to make continued work possible, consumption usually soon ends the sad life of these milliners and dressmakers. Even those who leave this work at an early age retain permanent injured health, a broken constitution, and when married bring feeble and sickly children into the world. All the medical men interrogated by the commissioner agreed that no method of life could be invented better calculated to destroy health and induce early death. With the same cruelty, though somewhat more indirectly, the rest of the needlewomen of London are exploited. The girls employed in stay-making have a hard, wearing occupation, trying to the eyes. And what wages do they get? I do not know, but this I know that the middleman who has to give security for the material delivered, and who distributes the work among the needlewomen, receives one and a half pence per piece. From this he deducts his own pay, at least half pence, so that one pence at most reaches the pocket of the girl. The girls who sew neckties must bind themselves to work sixteen hours a day, and receive four and a half shillings a week. But the shirt-maker's lot is the worst, they receive for an ordinary shirt one and a half pence, formerly tuppence to threepence. But since the workhouse of St. Pancras, which is administered by a radical board of guardians, began to undertake the work at one and a half pence, the poor women outside have been compelled to do the same. For fine fancy shirts, which can be made in one day of eighteen hours, sixpence is paid. The weekly wage of these sewing-women, according to this, and according to testimony from many sides, including both needlewomen and employers, is two shillings sixpence, to three shillings for most strained work continued far into the night. And what crowns this shameful barbarism is the fact that the women must give a money deposit for a part of the materials entrusted to them, which they naturally cannot do unless they pawn a part of them, as the employers very well know redeeming them at a loss, or if they cannot redeem the materials, they must appear before a justice of the peace, 
as happened a sewing-woman in November 1843. A poor girl who got into this strait and did not know what to do next drowned herself in a canal in 1844. These women usually live in little garret-rooms in the utmost distress, where as many crowd together as the space can possibly admit, and where in winter the animal warmth of the workers is the only heat obtainable. Here they sit bent over their work, sewing from four or five in the morning until midnight, destroying their health in a year or two, and ending in an early grave, without being able to obtain the poorest necessities of life meanwhile. And below them roll the brilliant equipages of the upper bourgeoisie, and perhaps some ten steps away some pitiable dandy loses more money in one evening at faro than they can earn in a year. Such is the condition of the English manufacturing proletariat. In all directions, whithersoever we may turn, we find want and disease permanent or temporary, and demoralization arising from the condition of the workers. In all directions, slow but sure, undermining and final destruction of the human being, physically as well as mentally. Is this a state of things which can last? It cannot and will not last. The workers, the great majority of the nation, will not endure it. Let us see what they say of it. End of chapter 7